This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. Hey everybody, Jen Hatmaker here, your host of the For the Love podcast. Welcome to the show. It's a big one today, guys. We are in a series called For the Love of Being Seen and Heard. We've had really some profound conversations in this particular series with a group of really extraordinary people who are using their voices and their experiences to help others see and hear and understand some really vitally important issues in the world right now. I think the inability to see, hear, listen, or understand extends like it's almost like a cultural plague right now, right? Just and we can fill in the blank on the other side of that, whatever that marginalized group might be, who are still like grappling for their correct and rightful place, whether it's like LGBTQIA folks or mental health, like crises and anti-racism, inequality in the workplace, you know, it goes on and on. And then for the purpose of today's episode, there is a brave, courageous, sturdy group of people who have taken to the streets in the name of justice because they are heartbroken and angry about the constant gun violence in our country. And they are refusing to sit by. They're advocating for change. So they've raised their voices and said things like, I can't breathe. And they've said things like, say her name. And they are looking to prevent tragedies like the ones that constantly happen. Constantly. Uvalde, Colorado, Memphis, Nashville, Monterey Park, just this year. We're not a half a year into 2023, and there have been more than 260 mass shootings in America. So you know me, if you follow me over on my personal socials, but I have cycled through all of it, fury, despair, anger over our American gun culture, our obsession with guns, and particularly our legislators' refusal to really make any meaningful changes, changes, by the way, that we are pretty unanimous on as a constituency, like across party lines to some of these just kind of common sense 
gun responsibility measures, it continues to be endless mass shootings. And I just keep wondering how many, I mean, what's the number? What, what's the number? How many gun deaths? What, what number does it, will it matter? What number can we get our legislators to budge? How many elementary schools need to be shot up? What's the number? How many targeted LGBTQIA shootings do we have to have? What's the number? What's the magic number? So despite how bleak things sometimes look, in the aftermath of yet another act of gun violence, there are people who are tirelessly fighting for change. They are, and they're, they're they're mattering. Change can happen, and in ways big and small, it is happening. That's because it's not going to just happen of its own momentum. It is because people join this fight. Then they march, and they get on their knees in front of Congress and beg them to care about dead children in schools. And they organize, and they register voters, and they... They campaign and they just refuse to give up. Our next guest today is one of them, one of those fearless leaders. We have Gloria Pan today on the show. She's an activist. She is the vice president for Moms Rising. So Moms Rising exists and has existed to take on the most critical issues facing women and mothers and families. Okay, by educating the public, mobilizing massive grassroots action to create change. And so one of the tent poles of their advocacy is to accelerate impact on Capitol Hill and state capitals to affect legislative change for families and children around gun safety. So Gloria is the head of that initiative, and she's made her voice heard all over the place. CNN, Los Angeles Times, NPR, all kinds of media platforms. She's tenacious. She's smart. I learned I learned something today. She introduced a dialogue around the Second Amendment today that I really hadn't heard. And it really gave me pause. And it is a different narrative than the one that we are constantly hearing. I, I, I'm excited for you to listen to this conversation. I hope it is informative and helpful and even hopeful because there is hope even now, even yet. So I'm so grateful for her and her time today. I'm so pleased to share my conversation with the amazing Gloria Pan. Gloria, I am so glad to meet you. I've been looking forward to meeting you. And for all that you are about to bring to the table, I want to say thank you in advance for your time and your energy toward this. I am so glad you exist and glad about your work. So thank you again for being here. I'm very glad to be here, Jen. And it's so great to meet you. So, okay, Gloria, I've told my listeners just a little bit. I I high leveled for them kind of who you are and what it is that you do. First, can you just tell my community, this is who I am. This is where I am. These are my people. This is my deal. And then could you discuss just sort of the origin story of Moms Rising and what your involvement is and what inspired you to sort of on-ramp here into this particular community? Sure. I'm a mom. I live in the Washington, D.C. area. I've got two kids. One of them is sleeping upstairs right now, even though it's noon, because he's a young adult. Um, 
<laughs> for those of your listenership that are not familiar with Moms Rising, let me just start there. Moms Rising, you know, we are a national on the ground and online organization of more than a million moms and family members across the country. We were founded, I don't know, 15 years ago on pocketbook issues, things like family and medical leave, fair pay for work. And those continue to be our signature issues. But over time, we've become kind of the umbrella organization for the leading issues that are impacting families at any given moment. So for example, under the Obama administration, we had a huge campaign fighting for access to health care. And under the last administration, we had a big campaign pushing back against family separation and for immigration reform. You know, we cover almost everything. We touch on almost everything. Of course, gun violence prevention. We did not do gun violence prevention until Sandy Hook. And you know how we sometimes hear people say, where were you when John F. Kennedy was assassinated? Well, for many people, you know, I think it's legitimate to say, where were you when Sandy Hook happened? After that happened, there was just such an outpouring of anger and grief from our members across the country, reaching out to us, demanding, you know, what can we do to make sure that this never happens again? And we are a member responsive organization. So um, you know, we jumped into the gun policy fight, uh, the fight for safety from gun violence immediately after Sandy Hook. So I've been doing this for more than 10 years. Yeah. Let's start like at the high level and then we'll drill down a little bit. As we know, guns are now the leading cause of death for kids in America. It's just such a crazy sentence to say. And yet, despite all the data, all the facts, this isn't, it's not partisan. We cannot convince some of our legislators that guns are the problem. This makes me feel regularly so disempowered and a little bit hopeless. And so if we were just going to start broadly, what do you think are the most important, maybe first two or three steps that should be taken to begin to reduce gun violence. And this is a huge ship and it will turn very slowly for a million reasons. We already have so many guns in circulation, more than anybody in the entire planet. This isn't simple. There's no simple answer here, but nonetheless, what do you see as this, this, and this is where we should start? That's a really difficult question to answer. We got where we are because there was a 50-year plan, a multi-decade plan from the gun rights extremists, and they started executing that plan around 1977. And we need to have our own 50-year plan. Okay. You know, when I started on this path, gun violence deaths in this country hovered around 32,000 people a year. And, and that was pretty consistent for many, many years. Now we're, we're nearing 50,000, right? And we have so many guns, more guns than people in this country. And guns have seeped into every nook and cranny of our lives, the public spaces, and now into our private spaces. A third of households in the, in the United States actually own guns, including likely 
many of the homes of our own family and friends. So, you know, practically speaking, you know, if you have children and you're sending them over to somebody's house to play, you know, don't be shy, you know, as you ask and you make them know my child has allergies, you should also ask, by the way, um, if you have a gun in your home, is it securely locked? You know, ensure those things, you know, just to, for your own peace of mind and to make sure that no accidents might happen, right? So the public is so upset about gun violence. You know, your very understandable despair, anger that's shared by so many people. The public wants gun policy reform. You know, more than 70% in a recent poll want better gun laws. Sure. Across the aisle, like we're kind of unanimous in our wishes in some regards. Right. So it is very important to continue making your feelings known. Continue making those phone calls. Continue signing those petitions. Continue turning out for rallies. Right. And in any way you can express your anger, express your, your, your despair, express your, your demands for accountability from your lawmakers. Okay. But honestly, we have a culture problem. We have a culture problem because gun rights extremists are having a completely different conversation. The narrative that they have is that we want guns everywhere because that's our constitutional right. You know, in all the time that I've been in this fight, I have seen so many survivors, you know, from Ubaldi, from Parkland, for Sam, from Sandy Hook, all of the famous mass shootings. You know, they're, they're trying to turn their grief into some kind of action. And they parade the halls of Congress in state houses. They re-traumatize themselves again and again. I've heard so many stories of them going to the offices of lawmakers who pray with them who cry with them and then turn around and betray them by voting a hard no on even the simplest of gun policy reform. So clearly they're answering to something else. And what they're answering to is this conception that the Second Amendment is this super constitutional right that guarantees our freedoms. And honestly, Jen, that conception was manufactured by the NRA and the right-wing extremists over their 50-year plan. And it's just not true. And we need to change that before we can move anywhere near, you know, moving in the direct right direction for gun safety for everybody. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Guys, it's already allergy season in Texas. My yard is in full bloom and all the things are in the air. So I decided allergies will not win this year. So I tried Astapro. It has improved my nasal allergy symptoms and it's faster, bro. Astapro is a first of its kind nasal allergy spray. It is the fastest 24 hour over the counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24 hour steroid free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription strength, indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. So get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go, you guys, today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. 
Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Astapro and go. When you say we need to change that, in your opinion, do you mean we need to change it constitutionally or culturally or both? There are laws, you know, in 2008, there was the landmark Heller decision from the Supreme Court, which basically changed the understanding of gun rights from a group right, because the militia is in the Second Amendment, and for hundreds of years, it was settled law. Gun rights are about group rights. But the 2008 Heller decision changed it into an individual right, right? So that needs to be addressed. And then most recently last year, based on the Heller decision, the Supreme Court went even further by the Bruin decision, okay, which basically has enabled, you know, right-wing gun extremists to begin dismantling whatever flimsy safety we have in our policies. So they're, they're starting to use the Bruin decision to dismantle gun safety laws like pistol purchase permits. So these things need to be considered, but we do need to understand the history of really what the Second Amendment is all about, right? You know, there's this idea that it was about Minutemen and freedom fighters, right? And aren't we all Minutemen and freedom fighters? Don't we all want to defend our democracy? Therefore, we need to have guns. But, you know, that history is actually not true. The militia referred to in the Second Amendment actually referred to slave militias. And there is increasing scholarship coming out that proves that, right? At the time of the founding of the country, even before that, you know, there was no law enforcement, any kind of safety. Safety depended on, you know, citizens, people in the community being armed to fight against indigenous people. And also to make sure that enslaved peoples knew their place. So then along comes the Revolutionary War and then the Constitution. They were putting together the Constitution and it had all of these incredible, wonderful ideas that were based on Enlightenment language about how people have fundamental rights. First of all, the people, you know, our founding fathers were a very specific group of people. They were white men. And when they were thinking about universal rights, they were really referring to people that were just like themselves, propertied, elite, white, male. That's what they were really thinking about. But nevertheless, our founding document had language that talked about universal rights. And that was very, very uncomfortable considering that in the South, so many people were enslaved. So now we were heading towards creating this new country. And we had this language that we were trying to build this country on. And the Southern colonies were very, very uncomfortable, especially in the North, considering that in the North, there's this growing discomfort, growing moral outrage, actually, over the fact that people were enslaved. And the Southern colonies were thinking, what's going to happen? You know, what's going to happen? And if we become a country and suddenly there's this nation and they have the ability to Call up people, you know, for a national army. Who is going to serve in our patrols and make sure that we're safe from 
you know, our slaves. Don't forget in the constitution, there was the guarantee already, you know, that they were not going to take away their slaves, right? There was this three-fifths clause. So the slavery was actually embedded in the constitution. So all of this happened already, but they were like, but if you take away our manpower in order to defend ourselves from our slaves, you're basically, you know, attacking our system anyway, right? And so in order to make sure that the Southern colonies agreed to ratify the constitution, suddenly there was this very weird little amendment that was put into the Bill of Rights, the Second Amendment. Mm -hmm. That is the true history of the Second Amendment. So how did we get here, right? It just sort of sat there, right? (laughs) For hundreds of years, the Second Amendment sat in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, and nothing much happened. It was settled constitutional law. And then in 1977, there was what they call the revolt of Cincinnati, okay? And the NRA had been a gun safety organization. They were founded to make sure that people knew how to handle their guns correctly, right? There was an internal revolt and basically gun extremists took over and they were like, we're not going to be about gun safety anymore. We're going to be about gun rights. And much of this was in response to the tumult of the 1960s. And they basically started implementing their plan to change the understanding of gun rights. Mm -hmm. You know, they started making the case that, no, this is about individual safety. And other things, they just started talking about how guns guarantee our other rights. They just started doing this. So this is a 50-year plan. And it culminated in the Heller decision in 2008. And, you know, that 2008 Heller decision, what it did was it gave the gun manufacturers and gun extremists to use the language of safety to make people afraid. They made people afraid of people that were not like themselves. And it helped them sell millions and millions of guns, basically by pointing out who are you afraid of? And frankly, the people that they were sometimes very overtly saying is, you need to be afraid of Black people, Latino people, you know, people who are not Christian. And here we are today. Yeah. And we feel that. I feel the permeation of just absolute fear, fear language, this fearful, defensive posture toward what used to just be our neighbors, right? It's insidious. And at this point, ubiquitous. I mean, it's just, this is just, I think just very recently, it seemed like right rapidly in a row, very recently, someone got shot for knocking on a neighbor's door, just knocking on a neighbor's door that happened or opening the wrong car door. Like this is just ordinary life stuff. But when you have armed people and then told them to be afraid and instructed them to be on guard, to protect themselves and defend themselves, that makes you scared. It makes you feel as if you are always in danger and you aren't. You aren't in danger, but we now have an entire culture of people who think they are in danger on the regular, in their home, 
if a neighbor knocks on the door, they're in danger. It's like we've lost our collective minds. And I don't know how to unravel this. We can and should, of course, do everything we can toward legislation and law. But what's in our minds and hearts, that is way harder to unspool. And it worked. That 50-year plan worked, I will say. That was effective. That was a long game. And it was well played. And now it has worked. Because the narrative of this at this point, of course, is more guns because guns keep you safe from other guns. <laughs> which is factually not true. It's factually right? not which true. Is factually right. not the true. The data doesn't bear out. Right. Yeah, exactly. But that doesn't matter. No, it doesn't matter. And there is the theme of safety, right? And then there is also, you know, the gun rights extremists have also really stoked up. You can feel powerful. You can be more of a man if you own a, on a gun, right? And they have also actively encouraged, you know, this empowerment and being able to walk outside with your gun so people can be afraid of you. Right. This sort of macho, protector, masculine narrative. And that also, to be fair, has been very effective. Come and take yes. it. Like pry it out of my cold, dead hands. All that language. It's it's worked, and they found their target. So this conversation has a million sort of tendrils, of course. Tell me more about some of the work that you do. What does it look like? What does Moms Rising advocacy look like? And you're the vice president. And to your earlier point at the top of the show, you know, your organization exists and was founded on a myriad of issues that face families and culture and safety and security. And so you weren't a myopic, you know, one issue organization. And now, of course, this is a deep well of your work. And so can you talk a little bit about what initiatives that you have currently in your organization, where you are onboarding your volunteers, where you are concentrating your particular efforts? Sure. So we are a member-based organization. We can't do the work we're, we're doing unless our members are there with us. And when I say members, it is very broad. We consider all moms and families who care about the future of their families and their communities and our country as our constituency. And we very much believe that our job is to bring their voices and their concerns to the policymaking table and to the policymaking uh, public discussion, right? And that means, you know, you share a story. Perhaps it's on childcare. Perhaps it's on gun violence. And we will put you in front of Congress, possibly, to testify in hearings. We will introduce you to the media who are looking for these stories to speak at rallies, right? We put you in storybooks, which we deliver, you know, to stakeholders and to say, look, here are the personal stories about this issue from real voices across the country, which are representative of the experiences of millions of families across the country. So we can't do the work that we're doing unless we have our members behind us willing to share their personal experiences and representing the experiences of so many families. 
So childcare has been a huge issue for us, as we saw over the pandemic. Lack of access to childcare now you're at home. How do you do your work if your kids are at home? I mean, that was a pandemic, very pandemic-specific issue. But what happened after that was childcare centers had to close. And then now we're back to work and access to childcare. It always has been, but it's really desperately unaffordable. And how can you pay the bills if you don't have quality, affordable childcare so that you can focus on earning a buck for your family? Access to healthcare continues to be an issue. We plug into the federal budget making process. So, you know, to make sure that funds are available to support families through programs like SNAP, right? Pandemic relief actually lifted 50% of children in poverty out of poverty. We're fighting right now also for maternal justice. For a country as wealthy as ours, it is absolutely shameful that so many of our moms, particularly moms of color, are at such high risk and actually die from pregnancy-related and birth-related complications. And we are fighting for the momnibus to address this. So, you know, we touch on almost everything and the fight goes on. And given the political balance of Congress right now, successes are hard fought, but we have to continue fighting. But I will, I will say one thing that is very, very gratifying and wonderful is the fact that not too long ago, issues that are of concern for moms and families were never even talked about in Congress, right? Childcare, paid family and medical leave, sure. Things that we call care policies that enable families to be able to care for our families, never even talked about. But because of the work of Moms Rising and our partners out there and moms and families speaking out, it is now front and center for many lawmakers. You're right. And that actually happened, you know, just fairly recently over the last five to 10 years. So things are working in that sense. It is moving in the right direction. So join us, you know, help us build this momentum towards this future where the, the well-being of families is front and center for this country. Because what are we without our families? In the area of gun violence, it can just feel and it, it does feel often we cannot gain any traction. Nothing is happening. Nothing is changing. This is hopeless. We are beating our heads against the wall. We are screaming into the wind. We can't move the needle in the areas that it has to be moved. It feels that way a lot. But to your point, this is the way change happens. It's the way change has always happened. It is gritty and hard and long. And it's also small. Like this is one of those mountains that has to be chipped away at. There isn't one fell swoop here. And so to that end, I wonder if particularly in the area of gun violence, what have you seen semi-recently that would be small victories where you feel like, God, we gained a little ground here or this took or this stuck or we moved the needle. I mean, however small. It was because those eventually accrue and add up to change. I will say that the one thing that really, really gives me hope is our young people, the upcoming mm. generations. I say that a lot. They, their, their view of the world is just so different from ours. You know, there has never been 
such a multicultural, multi-ethnic, diverse generation, and it's increasingly so. And their friends, you know, even if they don't know somebody who's different from themselves in a particular way, they're on social media and they see it. And they don't want unfairness for anybody. They don't want, you know, targeted racism and violence and structural racism that impact people. They don't want anybody to experience that. And so on the gun violence issue, it really is a very, very particular viewpoint. And I can't see how it's going to survive with our younger generations. I can't see it. So most immediately, it's been very exciting to see Maxwell Frost elected to Congress out of Florida. He's 26 years old. He is the youngest member of Congress. And he literally came out of March for Our Lives, which is the group that came out of the Parkland shooting. And he's just so inspirational. And he is a gun violence champion. So the fact that he is now in Congress is a huge victory and very, very encouraging. And I think that he's very representative. So I look at my own children, look at your own children. You know, they are the future. We're also seeing increasingly young voters. They have traditionally kind of sat it out because, you know, they just didn't pay attention. They were busy growing up. But they now are increasingly understanding that the process of growing up includes increasingly taking responsibility for your own future. So we're seeing young people come out to vote. Of course, it's not only about gun violence. It's also about reproductive rights. It's also about climate change, right? I am so sorry to the young people that we have failed to. We are doing the best we can. But we are so grateful that young people increasingly see that they are going to be their own saviors. And I am so excited to see that. I am too. I am too. I believe in them. And I have five kids and they range from 17 to 25. So this is my age group that I house and (laughs) raise. And they're different. They're different than I was at their age. They are paying attention in ways that I'd never even dreamed of. They race to early voting. I mean, they're just different. And I too have a lot of faith in them. There's a lot to unravel, but I too believe in their like capacity, their tenacity, and just who they are. They're different. They're a different generation. So I'm hopeful too. As for us in our age, we still fight. As you said, we have to. This is this is our responsibility. This this is on our watch. We're the adults in the room right now. And so on we go. Can you just, before we sign off here, can you tell my listeners how they can find out more about Moms Rising, how they can get involved, how they can, all of it, all of that, and where? Sure. So first of all, please visit our website, momsrising.org. Take a look at all of the things that we've been doing and sign up. Sign up to be part of our email list so you can know what we're up to at any given moment and also to take action. Our email list, you know, includes, you know, information about our online meetings. And also like now is the time to call your senator. Now is the time to call your representative about whatever issue. And then also sign our petitions. And by the way, I do want to emphasize petitions do matter. Some people are like, oh, what do petitions mean? Petitions matter. We deliver our petitions and we use it in many, many different ways. So sign up for our email list and then also, you know, follow us 
follow us on TikTok, on Instagram, on Facebook, and any other social media channel that you may be on. And if you are really fired up, we are extremely accessible. Send an email to keepmarching at momsrising.org and let us know your thoughts. And we are happy to have a conversation with you on how you can really make a difference. Mm. Thank you, Gloria. Thank you for your work. Thank you for keeping your foot on the gas. Thank you for not giving up because this is slow, hard work. It's not sexy. It's not glamorous. It's baked baked into the sauce is disappointment, <laughs> um, discouragement. And so I am so thankful that you have put your hand to this work and you continue to. And I'm thrilled to put all this in front of my community. We're very like-minded. Last question. I ask all my guests this every series, all the time. And I would feel free to answer this however it is you want to. We get earnest like answers to this. We get absurd, hilarious answers, whatever you're feeling like today. What is saving your life right now? This is not going to be witty or clever, (laughs) but honestly, like I I am planning on taking a real break this summer, completely unplugging. And honestly, I'm I'm like the kind of person who's like, I'm go, 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 right? I'm hardly ever offline. And I am, I have made a promise to myself this summer that I'm going to just turn everything off. I'm going to turn everything off and I'm going to take a multi-week break and I'm going to retreat into private life. And I want to enjoy my family. I want to enjoy my friends. I want to, I I would say like my my husband's from Montana and we're going to be spending some time there. I was like, I'm going to breathe the fresh you know, mountain air, assuming the Canadian wildfires don't come that's down right. while we're there, right? That's right. But that's what I'm going to be doing. And that is saving my life right now. I am looking forward to that break. And I am trusting that on the other side of it, I'm going to come back and I am just going to be, you know, fired up and ready to go. I also want to thank you, Jen, for inviting me here and thanking you and your audience members, because honestly, the work that we do is not possible unless we all pull together and make things happen. And that includes you and everybody like you and us and everyone. So thank you. That's right. You're welcome. And my estimation, it will always be the women who pull the the ship forward. And I definitely put my chips on us. So this is how we do it. Thank you so much, Gloria, for being here today. And for everybody listening, I will link to all of Gloria's stuff, all of mom's rising socials, everything, everything she mentioned, I'll have for you in one spot. And so let's on board. Let's, let's grab an oar and row. This is, this is what we do. So thank you. I hope you enjoy your time off this summer. I respect that decision. Um, your work is too hard to do endlessly with no respite at all. It's too hard. I hope your brain takes a break, your body takes a break, your heart takes a break, and that that delivers to you everything that you deserve in terms of taking a breath. And then we'll see you when you come back on the other side. Thanks, Jen.
All right, you guys, as promised, go to jenhatmaker.com under the podcast tab. And we'll have all of this for you, where you can sign up, where you can follow on socials, how you can get involved. I just keep thinking when, when we look historically backward over all major social and cultural reforms in our country, this is how it's always gone. It's looked like this. It's just ordinary people, okay, who come together and make it happen. We cannot wait for change to come from the top down. It isn't coming. I mean, our, at least some of our leaders have made that clear. They don't care. They don't, they don't listen. They won't budge. It doesn't matter what their constituency asks for. They're in lockstep on the way that they are going to vote and what they will or will not pass on gun responsibility. And so this is ours. This is ours to do. And it's worked before. And however the quote goes, it's really the only thing that ever has. So I appreciate Gloria's tenacity. And I'm looking forward to being a part of Moms Rising. So thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. Thank you for paying attention to the Being Seen and Heard series. These are hugely important issues. These are the places where people are saying, please, can you see and hear me, right? And so if you would like to share this episode, you can find back over at jenhatmaker.com. There is the all the show notes and the link to this. And so thank you every time you do that. And thank you for subscribing and reviewing and rating the show. All of that matters. We read it all. We see it all. We watch it all. It, it matters to this to this space that we love to continue to create for you. So on behalf of Laura, my producer and her team over at Four Eyes and Amanda and I, we love you. We love to serve you. And we'll see you next week, you guys.